0: Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 3, <clears throat> Ruth chapter 3, and as we are coming towards the, uh, this point in this book, we are really, uh, by God's grace, we'll actually be finishing the book today. If you recall from last week, some of the events that we saw unfolding within the book of Ruth, we saw that as uh, Ruth had gone out into the field to, to glean, that she just happened to come to the field of Boaz, and as she comes back home and she brings back just an enormous amount of food, then Naomi is shocked at this. And she, when she learns where it was that Ruth had been gleaning, she is excited That Ruth Ruth had stumbled upon Boaz's field and that he was treating her so well. And so she instructed Ruth, hey, stay in this field. Don't go anywhere else. You will be safe with Boaz. And what's more, he is one of our redeemers. He is a close relative of ours. One of our redeemers is what Naomi says at the end of chapter 2. Well, today we are going to see the significance of that statement on the part of Naomi. What did she mean when she said that Boaz is one of our redeemers? We're going to see the significance of that. Before we do get too far into things, I, I do want to address uh, the concept of, and I've, I've addressed this when we were first beginning our Uh, stepping into Ruth at the beginning, but I just want to speak to it a little bit more now as we consider the, the role of Boaz as a redeemer. It is very common for people to jump to the idea that Boaz is a type of Christ. He redeemed Ruth, and just likewise that, Christ redeems us, etc. However, when we first started our study of Ruth, I expressed how I am hesitant to see Boaz as a type of Christ. And I said there's a a few reasons for that. One was because Scripture never identifies him as a type. And there are a few additional reasons for that. One reason is because in chapter 2 we see the reason why Boaz is treating Ruth so well is because of her worthiness. In the midst of the story, she was caring for her mother-in-law. In fact, the words of Boaz, is, it is because everything that you have done for your mother-in-law has been told to me, therefore I am showing favor to you. And later, Boaz will call her a worthy woman in chapter 3, which we will see today. And if we think about that, if we think about the implications, if Boaz is a type of Christ, this introduces problems to us because Christ doesn't redeem on the basis of worthiness. He redeems because of His grace and mercy and love. And that's a good thing because we aren't worthy, right? We are not worthy. Second, as we shall see, Boaz is going to be unable to redeem Ruth. Unless the nearer kinsman declines. And again, this is not how Christ operates. Christ is a mighty Savior. He is a mighty to save and to save to the uttermost those who have faith in Christ. And so, for those reasons, I, I struggle with the concept of, of, of uh, viewing Boaz as a type of Christ in the midst of the story. And I spend time on that this morning for a couple of reasons. One, As we move through this material, you may wonder, it may come into your mind, hey, why isn't he talking about this concept of Boaz being a type of Christ? Well, that's why. (laughs) I'm kind of preempting the question by seeking to address it on the front end. And second, I do want us to turn our attention to what I believe is the author's intent in the midst of this book so that we can learn and seek what is truly here instead of looking for what isn't here. Here. Because the reality is, is that a denial of, of typology in the book of Ruth does not make Ruth less meaningful for us today as believers in Christ. Ruth is a marvelous book without stacking what I believe to be artificial meaning on top of the book. And, and if, we, if we go that direction, I think we have a chance of even obscuring what the author was intending to show for us within this marvelous book. And so I wanted to address that on the front end as we begin to consider the particulars of how Boaz goes about the task of redeeming Ruth and Naomi. In our text today, we are going to see several individuals who act with a purpose. We're going to see Ruth and how she steps forward and in faith in many ways and acting with a purpose. We're going to see Boaz and him acting as he steps forward in purpose as he seeks to accomplish particular ends. But in the end, we see that it is God whose purposes are ultimately being accomplished in His good providence. So as we look at our text today, let's pick things up in Ruth chapter 3 as we see Ruth's purpose to seek out a Redeemer. Ruth chapter 3 beginning with verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, "'My daughter,' Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking, but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are. A worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And, she, "'And he said, "'Let it not be known "'that the woman came to the threshing floor. "'And he said, "'Bring the garment you are wearing "'and hold it out.' And, and, he, "'And she held it. "'And he measured out six measures of barley "'and put it on her. "'Then she went into the city. "'And when she came to her mother-in-law, "'she said, "'How did you fare, my daughter?' "'And she told all that the man had done for her, "'saying, "'These six measures of barley "'he gave to me, for he said to me, "'You must not go back empty-handed "'to your mother-in-law.' "'She replied, "'Wait, my daughter.' Until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will saddle the matter today. In many ways, as we seek to understand this passage and and know what's going on here, there's there's a, a few cultural things that we need to identify and 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 talk through so that we have an understanding of what's going on culturally that'll help us inform the events that are unfolding. We have this concept of a kinsman redeemer before us. This, is, this might be a foreign concept to us. We, it's not something that we have in our culture today. We don't really understand what, what the purpose is of this. Well, Daniel Block in his commentary on the book of Ruth gives a very helpful breakdown of this concept. And there are five things that he identifies throughout Scripture where these where near relatives have a responsibility to care for the well-being of a relative and so he writes in his commentary the following as a kinsman term this this concept of redeemer denotes a near relative who is responsible for the economic well-being of a relative and he comes into play especially when the relative is in distress and cannot get him or herself out of the crisis the scriptures note five aspects of a rede, of a redeemer's redemptive role one To ensure that the hereditary property of the clan never passes out of the clan. We see that in Leviticus chapter 25. Two, to maintain the freedom of individuals within the clan by buying back those who have sold themselves into slavery because of poverty. Again, Leviticus chapter 25. In those days, if you were poor, if you had a debt to pay and you could not pay it, one means of repaying that debt would be to sell yourself into slavery to pay off the debt until such a time when the debt was paid. Well, a Redeemer could come along and pay the debt for you and redeem you from slavery through these means. Third purpose we find in Scripture is to track down and execute murderers of near relatives. We see this in Numbers, chapter 35. Fourth, we see that uh, uh, a Redeemer could receive restitution money on behalf of a deceased victim of a crime, Numbers, chapter 5. And finally, the fifth reason was to ensure that justice is served in a lawsuit involving a relative. And there are a few passages that are cited from Job to Psalms to the book of Jeremiah. We see these different purposes in these different principles laid forth about how a a near relative, their responsibility towards their family member to ensure that they would be cared for in the midst of a crisis. Now one thing that might strike us is even as we consider those five things that are listed throughout scripture about these near relatives is that the book of Ruth refers to Boaz as a redeemer But none of these texts speak of anything about marrying the widow of a deceased relative. That that concept isn't found. However, it seems that the Israelites they took this principle of the Redeemer and they applied it to this area of widows and the concept of a what's called a Leverite marriage. Well, what is a Levite marriage. We're going to flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 25 for a moment to help us gain an understanding of, of this concept this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 25, and we're going to pick things up in verse 5. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son... The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then the brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall, she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house, and the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. It is intense. It's, this is a big deal in in so many ways. Like it's, again, this this strikes us as odd, right? This is not a part of our culture. this is not a part of of how we think about things. this is This is an odd thing, but what we have to get our minds, our heads into the spaces of, of recognizing the significance of the family within the Israelite context and the significance of, of keeping family property within the family and keeping it there. So, so we have in this, this Deuteronomy passage, this, the brother, he's supposed to perform this duty of raising up a child through marrying his brother's widow, and that that child would be considered the son of his brother, and that any that the inheritance that would have gone to this man's bro- this man's children would go through that uh, that son that would be born to this woman, but in this text, again, we have this interesting phenomenon where It doesn't mention other relatives, it mentions the brothers, it doesn't mention cousins or or, or more distant relatives, it speaks of brothers. And so how do we get to the place where we have Boaz is considered a kinsman redeemer and he is considered responsible to perform this duty when this is not what Deuteronomy speaks of? Well, again, it seems that the Israelites were applying the principles of the Redeemer to this concept of Levite marriage and viewing it as something that was to be playing out in this way. Because here is what's at stake for Ruth. Here's what's at stake for Naomi. Not only are Ruth and Naomi destitute, but there's a legitimate chance that their family property is going to be lost because there's no heir for the family. And again, that might not strike us as a big deal here in the as we stand here today in the year 2022. It's like, okay, what's the big deal? You know, property transfers to different people all the time. To the Israelites, this was such a significant statement, not only about the property as it's just remaining in the family, but about God's blessing upon the people within the land. That God had promised that this land would belong to you and to your children. And so for property to leave your family and to go into someone else's family was to was to communicate something about your family that perhaps there was a curse upon your family from God. And so for fam- for this property to remaining in your family was was so weighty and so significant for them culturally that to lose that would have weighed Weighed heavily upon the hearts of Naomi and the family there, and so we have even within the law of Moses different provisions for keeping the property within the family, so that it would be a statement of, of God's provision even amongst the people. Even if property were to be sold, or if there were be individuals that were die out, we had things like the year of jubilee that would set all slaves free and return property back to the original families. Property. You would, would transfer back to the original family. And so, here, as we stand here, as we study the book of Ruth, not only is the provision for Ruth and Naomi just trying to survive and make their way in the world, that's on the line, but the reputation of their family and the, the property remaining in the family, all of that is on the line here. In this book. And so Naomi gives instructions to Ruth. It's time to approach Boaz. And to seek that he would redeem Ruth and Naomi. As the word of God would instruct. And so she tells Ruth. Go make yourself presentable. Wash yourself. Clean yourself up. Put on your cloak. And then go and approach Boaz. Now. These actions may have indicated something that, in in those days, if you were in mourning over the loss of a husband, that was something that was very visible, it was something that it would have been, you know, talk, we talk about the concept of wearing something on your sleeves. Well, in those days, mourning was a very visible thing. There was a certain dress that would have been on you, you know, the concept of putting ash and dirt upon your head to indicate your time of Mourning. Well, for Ruth to clean herself up and to dress herself, to anoint herself and to put on this cloak, that may have been an indication that her time of mourning was done and that she was ready to step forward and move forward in her life and signal that she is ready for courtship. And so she takes these steps and she heeds the voice of her mother-in-law and so now she approaches Boaz. And again... We're dealing with more cultural things that are difficult for us to, to understand. Okay, man, she is approaching Boaz in such a strange way. What is happening here? And unfortunately, we have to deal with some difficulties within this text. You know, Some have interpreted Ruth's actions in an immoral, sexual way. And to, there's a degree of uh, understandability with that approach, as many of the words can be understood in a variety of of ways and be translated in a variety of ways, and considering that where Boaz was located in an isolated field away from others, and the time period we're living in in the Book of Judges, if there were to be some immorality at play here, would that really surprise us? I like guess that's, it's that's, that's a thing that would have occurred in the land. However, the overall context of the book, as well as the purpose that the original author had when he was writing this book would make this interpretation of these events questionable at best. If we consider the great lengths that the author is going to to demonstrate the godly and pious lives of both Ruth and Boaz, how Ruth said, Your God shall be my God, and she devoted herself to her mother-in-law and how Boaz is such a pious man doing what is right in the land and providing protection for Ruth. To put them in such a compromising situation would seem counter to the entire tone and tenor of the book. Second, as we consider that the author's purpose is to serve as a polemic for King David's legitimacy on the throne as king over Israel, well, if someone wanted to besmirch the name and the legitimacy of David's place on the throne, perhaps they would have thrown something out like, oh, yeah, David, he's... He's not even a full-blooded Israel. He's got Moabite blood in him. Oh, look at how his ancestors behaved. A salacious story about an inappropriate encounter would certainly not have served the purposes of the author as he was seeking to establish David as the rightful ruler in Israel. And third, is we consider each of the terms and the customs represented here, they all can be legitimately understood as perfectly innocent actions according to the customs of the day without having to be embarrassed by what we see in the text. And it does seem strange to us, right? Like these are, these are strange things. She's going up to him at night and uncovering his feet and lying down at his feet. Like that's, that's a strange thing for us. It doesn't make, make sense to our minds But strange doesn't mean immoral. And based how things unfold, we can be confident that both Boaz and Ruth acted consistently with their pious innocence as they are presented throughout the rest of the book. So for those reasons, I do not view Ruth's actions here as engaging in any kind of immorality. That is not to say, however... That Ruth's actions were without risk. As she is coming before Boaz, she is putting herself in a very risky situation. She, she doesn't know how Boaz will respond. Will he take her as a? he wakes up and he finds this woman at his feet? Will he like, what's, is this a prostitute before me? And will he banish her? Would he acknowledge her case but then refuse to redeem her as she sought his, this redemption? This is a risky thing for her to engage in and to approach Boaz in this way. Well, after being startled awake and hearing Ruth's request, he, he speaks favorably to her. But then we come to an unforeseen issue. Boaz cannot redeem her. Boaz cannot redeem her. And and as we go through this story, as we see the the, the steps unfold, if we just consider it, it, just the the unfolding and the telling of the story, this is where as the plot comes along, we come to a crisis moment in the plot. Everything was going so well. Man, we have Ruth and Naomi and and, and there's hope in their lives now and and Boaz is providing for Ruth and well, there's this neat relationship that is developing and blossoming and, and now she goes and approaches Boaz and Boaz speaks favorably to her and now Boaz cannot redeem her. Boaz, he's an older man. It seems through the stories we see that he, he kind of fancies Ruth and Ruth seems to reciprocate that as well. Everything seems to be coming together so nicely and then all of a sudden we have to pump the brakes, the tires screech to a halt because we have a problem because Boaz is not the nearest redeemer. And in order for him to redeem her, to redeem her, the nearest kinsmen must pass on the opportunity. Well, Ruth returns home, she reports everything to Naomi. But Naomi doesn't seem to be phased or concerned about the situation. In fact, she has this confidence. No, Boaz is a man of character. This man, he's going to take care of things. And he's going to address the issue straight away. And so as As we transition into chapter 4, we see Boaz doing just that. We saw Ruth's purpose. She sought to seek out a Redeemer. Boaz's purpose was to redeem Ruth. Let's read chapter 4 beginning with verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, "Sit down here." So they sat down. Culturally, another thing that we must understand is that at the the gate of the city is often where business was conducted; even legal affairs were worked out at the city gate, in the in the viewing of everyone that everyone could see and be witnesses to the events as they were unfolding. And so that is what's going on here. Verse three. Then he said to the redeemer. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, "Buy it for yourself," he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people. You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So we see the nearer kinsman, he has the opportunity to redeem Ruth, and in many ways this would have added to his estate, right? Naomi's selling the field, he has the opportunity to buy it and to add to his estate, which would have been profitable for him, and he was eager to do so at first, but when he learned that he would also have to redeem not only the land, but also Ruth, and by extension also Naomi as well, all of a sudden this financial boon that this represented it to him, perhaps would have been a financial liability to him in some way. Perhaps the cost of caring for two widows would outweigh the benefits of the increased land. Perhaps if Ruth only bears him one son, he fears losing his property to the family line of Elimelech instead of himself. Whatever the reason, he decides, in the interest of protecting his own inheritance, that he would pass on this opportunity and transfers the right of redemption to Boaz. And so Boaz redeems the field and all the elders of the city pronounce this blessing. Okay, you've done this thing and, and may the Lord make this marriage fruitful and produce many children for the sake of, uh, of your family. And then we, let's just read through the end of the book as we conclude this book. Verse 13. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, for he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. These last couple of concluding paragraphs contain several interesting details, just noting a few of them. It's interesting that though Ruth bears the son, the women of the community say that the son has been born to Naomi. It's a curious detail. In many ways, it seems that though Ruth is indeed a main, a key character in the book, it seems that Naomi is actually the main character, that this is a story about God's provision for Naomi. It's it's less of a book about the love story between Ruth and Boaz and more about God's provision for Naomi and through Ruth and Boaz, God's provision for King David. They name the child Obed, meaning one who serves, likely a shortened version of the name Obadiah, which means servant of Yahweh. Some have found the genealogy in the end of the book to be strange and out of place, but it's perfectly in place when we consider the purpose and the intent of the author in penning this book. And as we consider that, we're going to close our study with just a few reminders and observations of God's purpose in the midst of this. We've seen Ruth's purpose in her actions. We saw Boaz's purpose in his actions. Well, we conclude with God's purpose to establish the king. Ruth sought a kinsman redeemer to provide children for her and Naomi. Boaz sought to perform his ethical responsibility for a woman he came to love. But through all these events, God's purpose was to establish the godly line through which King David would come. As we've discussed at different points, this book is a a polemic to help establish the legitimacy of King David in the early part of his reign. It shows God's divine providence to bring about his purposes in the lives of ordinary individuals. We see God accomplishing his purposes even through the pain of that Naomi experienced as she loses her husband and her sons, and says, "Call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me." God's purposes was still being accomplished. We saw God accomplishing His purposes through what seemed like just mere happenstances. Ruth just happened to happen across the field of Boaz. Even in what seems like ch- chance encounters, God was accomplishing. His purposes. And we see today that God was accomplishing His purposes even when Ruth and and Naomi and Boaz, each of them were acting with, with purpose and they were trying to bring about particular events within their lives. God was at work within those as well, bringing about His purposes even when Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi had no idea what God was doing. And this is how God's providence so often works. Here we are just living our lives. And hopefully we are seeking to be as dutiful as, as Boaz and Ruth were and, and faithfully living out what God says is right for us as we pursue our lives in this world. Hopefully we're not just living lives that are just completely thrown to the wind but are living purposeful lives and taking steps as we ought to be taking steps. But through it all, The same God who was at work in the life of Ruth is the same God who is at work in our lives today. Though Boaz and Ruth do not see all the details of what is unfolding, it is through them that God brings King David and then ultimately King Jesus. The provision of a Savior came through the provision to Naomi and Ruth. And so as we conclude this book, I just would call us to reflect upon a few things by way of application. How do you think about your life and the events that unfold within it? Do you view yourself as a vessel through which God is accomplishing His purposes in the world? Or do you live as though you exist Merely for yourself. In the hard times, do you trust that God is still accomplishing His purposes and you allow that knowledge to comfort you? In good times, do you consider that that perhaps God is using you to be in a position to bless others? Do you look at the One who has provided all things, even His own Son, Jesus Christ, That all who would trust in Him have the provision of eternal life. And do you look to that one for your daily needs? I think of Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. It says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Our God is a God of provision. We don't always see His purposes. We don't always know what He's doing. But His providence is there. And He is accomplishing His purposes. And we are called to rest and trust in Him through it all. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have revealed for us. This marvelous story of the book of of Ruth, a story of your provision, a story of how you have brought about the line of King David and through him, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords over all. Lord, I pray that you would help us to rest in your provision. I pray that you would cause us to seek you for our provision, our daily needs, even as you have called us to, in the Lord's prayer, to seek out you, that we would ask for our daily bread, that you would provide for our every need. I pray that we would trust and receive what you give us as a gift from your hand, and that we would rest and trust in you even through the difficult times of life, knowing that your providence oversees all, and you are accomplishing your good purposes. We do pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.